Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel according to John, and turning to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and beginning our reading at verse 35. This should be on page 892. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Over recent weeks, uh, we have uh, been looking at what uh, we've been calling a short series on the doctrines of grace. What do we mean uh, when we talk about God's grace? The scriptures teach that it is by grace that you are saved. It is not the uh, the result of works so that no one can boast. But when you read through the scriptures and it talks about the work of God in saving sinners, when it talks about God's undeserved favor. You notice that the scriptures also unpack just how rich that dynamic is. What exactly did God do for us that we don't deserve? What exactly does God's acts of righteousness encompass? And we've already been pulling apart something of the the breadth of it because we've highlighted that God's grace begins before creation itself. You remember we looked at in Ephesians how before the foundation of the earth, before the foundation of the world, God chose 
God had a plan for salvation. He had purpose to save sinners even before he created the world. Because God knew that in creating this world, that his creatures would turn away. But it wasn't just that God had a plan, a framework, a blueprint for what he would do. But as Paul said in Ephesians, that God chose us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he chose us in Christ. And so Paul was highlighting something of the the extent of God's grace. Before anyone had done anything, either good or bad, God's purposes preceded it all. You remember how we looked at Scripture talks about our human condition, uh, that we are corrupt by nature, that sin has stained every aspect of our being, our mind and our will, our affections. And so when we talk about God's grace, it's not only what God has done for a person, but even what God has done in the sinner as well. We looked at last time how God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, and that Jesus himself in that I am statement said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. God's grace is seen in providing a savior for sinners. God's grace is seen in how Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And so if we're going to understand God's grace, we see that it's something that was accomplished in history. It's something that Jesus did for those who belonged to him, to those who were given to him. But this morning we want to again come back and to think, how exactly does what Jesus accomplished, what Jesus did, apply to people today? How is it that sinners come to enjoy the benefits of what Jesus accomplished? And for that, we want to again turn back to John's gospel. We said we were going to have a short series on the understanding of God's work of salvation. Uh, We don't want to look at every possible text because that is really the whole of the Bible. But we really want to just pinpoint how we can see these teachings develop in Scripture. But we are purposely looking at some of the very key passages uh, in God's word. We're looking at the sayings of Jesus uh, again this morning. And you notice this morning as we come back to John's gospel, it is one of those I am sayings. I am the bread of life. And when Jesus says that, you remember that his hearers become offended. Uh, They became offended because of what Jesus said, that he had came down from heaven. And they said, we know, we know who you are. We know Mary. We know Joseph. Uh, why are you talking like this? And so they, were, they began to grumble amongst themselves about the claim that Jesus made. And you see something happening there, don't you? People enjoyed listening to Jesus. They were favorable to Jesus' moral teachings. They were impressed with his way of life, his personal example. It was his teachings about himself that offended them. And you see that same dynamic, not just in the first century, but down through every century, where people will try to divide their view of Jesus between his, his teachings on how to treat our neighbor versus how Jesus says the way we treat our neighbor is ultimately sourced 
in our grounding of our understanding of who Jesus is. That people want to have a high view of Jesus' moral teachings, but they don't want to think seriously about what Jesus is saying about himself. And you see that creep up even within churches, where churches can talk about Jesus, how Jesus says we should help the poor, how Jesus says we should live a certain way of life, but they don't take seriously what Jesus is saying about himself. And here we see Jesus making a very clear statement about himself. I came down from heaven. I am the true bread of life. I give eternal life. And if we're going to take Jesus serious, we have to listen to what he says about himself as well. And so this morning, as we're coming to look at uh, John 6, we want to see that God's grace uh, not only addresses the problem of our sin, of our guilt, but also the problem of our own heart. And for that, we are to give uh, praise to God for every aspect of his grace. We want to look then at verse 44 uh, of John chapter 6 in particular, uh, where Jesus says in verse 44, "No, uh, uh, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We want to think about that language that Jesus is using here. The father drawing people unto himself. How is it that uh, people come to enjoy God's grace? And we want to think about this uh, statement really in three ways. We want to think about a condition that requires change. We want to think about the cause that brings about that change. uh, That drawing of the father. And then finally, the consequences of that change. First, notice there is this condition that is requiring change. If you go back to verse 37, Jesus said something very similar. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus is using the language of coming. Now, if someone came up to you and they said, Come over here you would know that when they're saying that to you, they are wanting, they're acknowledging there's a, a, a degree of separation between you. There's, there's a distance, a gap between you. And they're, they're wanting you to physically move closer so that they can show you something or so that they can tell you something. And so when someone says, come over here, they're acknowledging that there's a distance that makes it difficult or that there's a distance that impedes their ability to assist or to hear you or to communicate with you. But when Jesus says, all who come to me, he's not talking about a physical distance that separates, but rather he's talking about a a separation that exists on account of sin. That, That sin has actually caused separation between God and the sinner. That there is this problem that has to be overcome. And that's what you see when you read in the scriptures. When you read about Adam and Eve and how they sinned in the garden, what is the consequence of their sin? It tells us that after they sinned, that they hid. Why did they hide? They were ashamed of what they had done. They recognized their nakedness. They, they no longer were settled or at peace about the presence of God. They, they felt exposed and vulnerable, and so they didn't want to be near God. And so they hid themselves. 
so that God didn't need to be acknowledged. They wanted to get away from God. That's not just something that Adam did or that Eve did. That's now characteristic of a sinful human heart. That by nature now, the effect of sin is is that we are people that want to hide from God. That we are people that want to suppress the truth about God. And we see that in all kinds of ways. When people don't want to be reminded that there is a God, they will do what is necessary to bury that information so that God does not need to be acknowledged. When a person doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that there is any objective right versus wrong, when they want to deny the moral intuition that God implants into the human psyche, that we are moral creatures, when people want to deny that, they're doing that because they don't want to acknowledge the moral giver, the judge over all things. It is an act of suppressing, suppressing the truth in order not to acknowledge God. It is a form of hiding. When a person doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that we are creatures that are made body and soul and that our bodies are biologically binary, that we are made male and female from the beginning, when people don't want to acknowledge that, it is not just simply word games. This is an act of suppressing the truth about the creator that God has made us male and female. And so this act, this battle about what does it mean to be human, ultimately comes down to do we acknowledge the lordship of God or are we suppressing the truth, hiding from the truth, not wanting any acknowledgement of God? Do you see how hiding still characterizes the sinful nature. We do it in other ways as well. We will deny uh, meaning in this life. We will do whatever it is taking so that our consciences are no longer stirred or pricked about sin. And that is uh, true of, uh, of, of our, our fallen nature. So when Jesus here comes and he says these words, all who come to me, he's acknowledging there's There's a need here. People need to come to him. Why do people need to come to Jesus? It's because we are those who have turned away from God. It is because there is a separation now between the sinner and his God. That in our sinful nature now, we aren't looking for God. We are separated from him. But Jesus says something even stronger when we get to our passage in verse 44. He actually speaks in the negative. No one can come to me. There in verse 44, uh, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus doesn't simply say that in their sinful condition, people don't come. Jesus says, No one can come. That's the language of ability. This is surely one of the hard sayings of Jesus in the scriptures, uh, because we like to think of our wills as pure, and we like to think about our our wills as free 
free in the sense that there is no restraints. But as the late Anglican John Charles uh, Ryle would explain, when we think about these words of Jesus, it is important uh, that we do so carefully because many make mistakes here. He says, let us remember that the will of man is the part of him which is in fault. His inability is not physical, but moral. It would not be true to say that a man has a real wish and a desire to come to Christ, just not the power. It would be more true to say that a man has no power to come because he has no desire. Do you hear the language that not only Ryle is using, but Jesus? No one can come. They can't come because they don't want to come. They don't want to come because their will is disinclined towards God. Think about how Jesus talks. Jesus says in another passage, everyone who sins, everyone who makes a practice of sinning is a slave to sin. They come under its dominion. They are by nature enslaved to that pattern of life. But Jesus is saying there that those who are under the power of sin, who are slaves to sin, are always going to choose sin. That we are free to choose, but our natures are always inclining us towards sin. That's, that's how we're wired now. That the problem isn't a lack of opportunities, a lack of uh, uh, attempts or experiences, that we're going to keep choosing sin, hiding from God, rather than looking to God by nature. That's what we become. You read in, for instance, the Old Testament, and it says that uh, 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 in Isaiah, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. You see, what was being communicated there was, it's not just that people need more chances. If they just have more chances, then they'll get it right eventually. The Lord says, I, re I reach out my hands all the day to a people who provoke me intentionally, who know what they're doing when they reject. What they need is not more opportunities. What they need is a change of heart, a change of the will. And so as when you think about what Jesus is saying here, he's saying there needs to be some change. Why? Because there's a separation on account of sin. There needs to be a change because no one can come to the Father that we don't have the desire to do it, let alone the ability to do it. And so this change comes about, Jesus explains, by the work of God's grace. No one can come to the Father, uh, un, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is the Father's work, ultimately, to bring about that change. Just as the Old Testament emphasized the problem of sin, so it emphasized the work of God's grace. We read there in Ezekiel where it says, I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God would bring about a change that would cause people to draw near. That's what is being emphasized here. The father who chose to save sinners 
and sent his son into this world, also purposed to draw people unto himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean when it says, unless the Father draws them? That language of drawing can be uh, subject to different understandings. But if you, if you study how the word is used even in the scriptures, you start to see a pattern emerging. You think, for instance, it tells us about uh, the disciples when Jesus tells the disciples to cast their net over onto the right side. And with their dragnet, they, they start dragging the fish over, trying to get it onto the boat and dragging that net towards the shore. That's the same word that is being used. When Paul and Silas are brought before the civil authorities, it tells us that they were seized and they were dragged to the authorities. When it tells us that Peter went to strike off uh, Malchus's ear, it tells us that he, he drew uh, the sword from its scabbard, that what Peter was doing there is he, he drew it out by force. In other words, in every one of those instances, it is the idea of a superior force overcoming an inferior force, an outward force that works upon another force. But that doesn't mean that God does violence to our will, that God is acting against a person's will. Rather, it means that God is changing the will. That the God who created us with a will, the God who fashioned us mysteriously and wonderfully, is a God who is able to remake us, reform us, remold us, as Matthew Henry would say, in such a way that does not do offense or violence to the individual. That God forms us again so that we are enabled to have a new will, a new affection. That's how God works. The Father draws people unto themselves, not by simply persuading them, as a counselor would do, but like a surgeon who actually replaces an old nature and implants a new nature, a new organ, oh, an organ that works so that life is there. Or like when you take out a battery, a dead battery that doesn't do anything, and you put in a new battery, now suddenly that toy has life. Now that toy operates. Now that toy is responsive. Here, the scriptures are emphasizing what God must do is he must take out that old nature that is not responsive to God and implant a new will so that we would willingly choose what is good, so that there would be a new desire for God. And so uh, uh, that is the source of the change as well as uh, the outworking of it. It is the work of the Spirit then to cause those who were dead in their sins to now willingly choose Christ. And when you step back and you think about it, that's, that's what makes grace amazing. Because when a person becomes a Christian... It's not just a little nudge changing their, their way of life a little bit. It's not just simply an acknowledgement now that there is a, a God, a creator, and, and living now with that mindset. 
What the scriptures teach is, is that it's not just a philosophy that has now been accepted. It's not just a way of life, a certain code of ethics that a person is now living by and adhering to. But when a person becomes a Christian, that it is a work of God. That Christianity is not simply a natural thing. It is essentially supernatural. That the work of being born again, the work of being made alive in Christ, is a work of God. That's why the Bible says that we must be born again. It likens it to new life, new birth. It describes it like a resurrection. It describes it like a new creation. Those are all things that only God can do. So when a person becomes a Christian, that's a work of God's grace. And that is uh, uh, what is being uh, emphasized here. In the Old Testament, God would say that that he drew his people unto himself with bands of love. And what Jesus is saying here is, is that God draws people unto himself, but that love has a name. That love is Jesus. And it's by the work of the Spirit that a person sees God's love. That instead of being disinclined, now they are inclined and they willingly choose what they formerly would reject. Maybe you go around and you see garage sales. Imagine seeing a garage sale where they say, moving, everything's free. And someone just looks at it and says, I bet you it's all garbage. And they keep going. They have no desire. They don't trust the seller. They're just trying to get rid of their junk. And they won't go. They won't inquire. They won't come. It's only when there is that willingness to come that a person can enjoy what is set before them. Christianity teaches that it's the work of the Spirit that causes someone to delight in something by, that by nature they don't want. That they come to see God as something worthy of their affections, of their loyalty, and of their trust. That's no small thing. That's a work of God's grace. And so if we recognize something of the corruption of our nature, it points us and pushes us to look to God as the source and the solution to our problems. What is God's grace? God's grace is that he, before the foundation of the world, chose to save sinners. He didn't have to. But he ordained a plan to save some. God's grace is that in the fullness of time, he sent his son into this world to redeem sinners by becoming a curse for them. That's grace. But God's grace is also in renewing the will, causing those who were blind, deaf, uninterested in the things of God to be made alive and now embracing these things themselves not simply because they're pressured by their family or by their peers, but because they believe, because God has opened their eyes. That's what Jesus is getting at here. So from a human point of view, we see all people are called to come. Jesus himself calls, 
Come to me if you are weary. But Jesus can also explain that from a divine point of view, why it is that any do come. It's a work of God's grace. So there's the condition that needs uh, change. We need to come to God. We need to come to Christ. We see the cause of it. It is by the Father uh, working uh, through the ministry of the Spirit. But we also see the consequence of it as well. Jesus says, I will raise him up uh, on the last day. This is actually uh, something he says four times in this discourse. That anyone who does come to me, I will give them eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. In other words, there is an enduring consequence to coming to Christ. That, that Jesus will bring them salvation. Uh, and so it shapes our way of thinking about Christianity. Again, the gospel is not first and foremost just an ethic system. It's not just first and foremost a philosophy. It's not just a way of life. It is first and foremost a knowledge of God and of his grace through Jesus Christ. It is a transformation of an individual who at one time lived without God to now living for God, who has come to delight in the Lord instead of suppressing the knowledge of God because of their guilt. They have come to trust in this God who has revealed himself to them. And so Christianity is about enjoying this God. That may not be the way that you've thought about Christianity. Maybe you've always thought about Christianity just as rules or just about doing certain things on certain times. But Christianity is a message of grace from beginning to end. And there's no one that falls in the cracks. All those for whom the Father has purposed to save are those for whom the Son has come to lay down his life for, are those for whom the Spirit will renew and make alive. And so if you have come to believe in Jesus, you have much more reason to give praise for than we might even imagine. We can praise God for the salvation in Christ. We can praise God for his decrees in eternity. We can praise God for the work of the Spirit giving us wills and desires that are aligned with him to give us ears to hear marvelous things in his word because it's all of grace. And so we never run short of reasons to praise God. And if you're sitting here as someone who hasn't come to Christ, then recognize again that reality that we are called to, that we are called to come to Christ. And that invitation is a real one. And realize that God uses means to draw people unto himself. The scriptures say that it is through the hearing of the word of Christ that faith comes through hearing. That's how a person comes to faith. And so if we haven't come to faith in Christ, we can begin by asking ourselves, why don't I come? And be honest. It might be that you find yourself saying, because I don't want to, which would be simply acknowledging the root problem itself, the will. But then secondly, you ask yourself, what does God say? 
what has God revealed about himself? And if there is a God who has revealed his acts of righteousness, then I should study them, I should contemplate them, I should take them seriously. Because if it's true, then it is worthy of my life. And so even if you haven't come to faith in Christ, then come to the word and ask God to show himself to you. Take Jesus' promises seriously that if we ask, it will be given to us. If we seek, we will find. Because God works through prayer. God works through his word. And all the while, he's showing his grace to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, these hard sayings of Jesus, we pray, Lord, that they would be uh, catalysts for praise, ultimately, uh, for the people of God. And we pray that they would not become barriers to those who have yet to come to faith, but that they would see the purposes of God unfolding. Lord, help us to be people who uh, live acknowledging uh, your control, but also acknowledging our responsibility. So we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with thanksgiving, even as we think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.